Our current culture seems more interested in the last two minutes than the last 2,000 years, and this is unfortunate. It's also avoidable. Join Mike Woodruff as he breaks down some of the most significant people, events, and ideas in church history. On today's episode, we look at Gregory the Great, a remarkable figure who shaped the church and impacted the world at a fragile moment in Western history. It's hard to imagine how different our lives would be without this man. Mike is going to give you an overview of his life, talk about how he changed the trajectory of the West, and suggest that we all look to raise our game in light of his example. In today's podcast, we take up the life and massive influence of Gregory the Great, also known as St. Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the First, and probably a few other things. As you're about to see, he was a remarkably gifted and accomplished man, sort of like the NFL player who also plays professional baseball, is a great musician, runs a charity, has you know a two handicap in golf, speaks four languages, going to med school on the off season. You, you look at these guys and you look at what they get done before breakfast and have no idea how they do it. Gregory was like that. And so, as you will see, he was called great because he was. Um, in fact, a few episodes back, I argued that the Middle Ages began with the fall of Rome. That's the most common view. But there are those who date it with the rise of Gregory. He is so significant that some not only see him as the last of the church fathers and the first medieval pope, they attribute some of the pivot out of the Roman Empire and into the Middle Ages to Gregory. Uh, I'm going to leave that debate, as I do all other historical debates, to real historians. Uh, one of their perennial questions seems to be, do great people make great times or do great times make great people? Was Abraham Lincoln such a great leader that he was able to hold the country together in the face of massive challenges? Or did the massive challenges make Abraham Lincoln such a great leader and a great president? Uh, I, I'm not going to chase my tail on this. I do not have a dog in the fight, but I mention it here because it highlights an important aspect of the discussion about Gregory. There's no doubt that he was a gifted man, but he lives at a critical moment in Europe and for the church. I'm, I'm thinking about the development of the Roman Catholic Church and the elevation of the papacy, which happens during the decline of the Roman Empire and during Gregory's life. So today's episode finds us teasing apart his life and the West's transition into the Middle Ages, which is complicated because it was quite an iterative process, and it's delicate because it deals with the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, which, uh, as a Protestant, I am going to talk about in a different way than a Roman Catholic would. More on that in a second. One of the things you need to pick up today is that it's during Gregory's life and leadership that the divide between the Eastern, so the, the capital O Orthodox Church, and the Western, the Catholic Universal Church, starts to pick up speed. The Great Schism, which will not happen for another 400 years, but as with any divorce, there are precipitating events that set things in motion way before that. Gregory's life is going to prove to be one of those precipitating events. He is, and Maybe I should say he is the key player during this time. The, the Western Church becomes the Roman Catholic Church. The Bishop of Rome becomes even more powerful and central than before, and the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Churches start their long slide towards a split. So I chose Gregory as one of the 100 most significant people, events, or ideas in the history of the Church because it's hard to imagine things working out the way they did without Gregory. This uber-competent, capable, highly educated scholar and talented administrator 
rising up at the, as the same time that Europe is flailing. So after Rome was sacked back in the early part of the 5th century, various people, a couple emperors in the Roman Senate, try to shore things up and reposition Rome as the capital of the empire. But, but they fail, which means the, the massive instability that has hit the developed world continues. And compounding the disruption of the empire collapsing, the, the barbarians that are overthrowing and looting the empire are not united. They're, they're broken into various tribes, and these tribes are not only fighting amongst themselves, but none of them has a leader with the interest or the ability to prop up the Roman infrastructure. So things are, are falling apart everywhere, and it's into this void that Gregory the Great steps. The, the omnicompetent bishop of Rome comes to the rescue. And in the process of helping bring some order, he gains a lot of power for the office of the bishop of Rome, and he steers the church down a particular path, a path in which it becomes the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as I've already noted, I'm a Protestant, and so I describe the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church differently than a Roman Catholic would. And we both describe things differently than someone from an Eastern Orthodox Church would. So part of what I want to talk about today is all of that. Doing so, I hope, in a way that is helpful and fair. It's it's really, I think, impossible to tell this story without betraying your biases. You, you will see mine. I'm a Protestant because I think it's closer to the early church than either the Eastern or the Catholic church. I think the Western church drifted in some unhelpful ways in the second half of the Middle Ages, and that the 16th century Reformation offered some helpful correctives. That does not mean I think the Protestants get it all right or that I don't see a lot of good and beauty in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. More on all this in a minute. Let's first get our bearings. So this is episode 17, and we are now in the 6th century and the Middle Ages, which is also called Christendom, and which is a lot better than you think if all you know about the Middle Ages is what you picked up watching Monty Python movies, or if um, you're a little bit more highbrow reading Miguel Cervantes' classic Don Quixote, both mock the Middle Ages. They alternately laugh at it and make it seem very depressing. The, the implication is that the Middle Ages are boring and backward and filthy and you die young. And Monty Python plays up the plague, right, with the guy pushing the cart. You know, bring out your dead. I mean, the, the idea is that you're either dead or you're about to die or you're picking up dead bodies. Don Quixote has this crazy old knight who jousts with a windmill. Uh, it was much better than that. Or... Maybe the way I ought to say this is during the thousand years that we're talking about, <laughs> there were periods that were much better than that. They were not uh, that bad, and there's much to celebrate. I mean, in literature, you have Beowulf, you have Canterbury Tales, Dante's Trilogy, King Arthur, Robin Hood. In theology, you have the rise of scholasticism, uh, Thomas Aquinas, and more. There's the, this is a time when a lot of great cathedrals are built, and interesting music is developed, and I mean, given the nights and the rise of Islam and the Crusades, it's not boring. It's not a boring period to study. We have, we've, we've talked a little bit about this already. So, of course, we started earlier, this podcast. Uh, so let me back up and get a running start again. The, the church was born at Pentecost sometime around 30 AD. 100, uh, 100 plus didn't start that far back. First episode was looking at the burning of Rome in 64, and then we took a small step ahead to the fall of Jerusalem in 70. 
These are the only events that, that we looked at that overlap in any way with the events reported in the New Testament. So after that, we looked at a few of the anti, uh, this is A-N-T-E, this is before Nicaea. So we looked at a few of the Antonician leaders, such as Justin Martyr and Polycarp, who, of course, was also martyred. We looked at Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen. We then looked at Constantine, the emperor, who makes the Christian faith legal and also convenes the Council of Nicaea. These were fourth century events. From there, I spoke about the Apostles' Creed and then turned to some of the major figures and events between the council and the fall of Rome. It was, it was here that Augustine and Jerome got some airtime. We then looked at the Council of Constantinople with Athanasius, and since then we've explored a couple of key leaders, uh, St. Patrick and St. Benedict, and we also looked at the monastic movement, which was a big deal and a big reforming initiative throughout the church. So we've covered more than 500 years, which means we started when the church was small, struggling, and somewhat underground, and it remained that way for about 300 years before it emerged out of the darkness, becoming legal and then growing like a brush fire. All of this forced the church to deal with some theological issues and to navigate a, a new relationship with the state, all of which brings us to the Middle Ages, which I just rehearsed and which I've spoken about in previous episodes now. So you've heard me say that this period unofficially starts with the Dark Ages. The first few hundred years during which uh, things are declining and, and also a time about which we don't know much. So it's sort of dark in that sense. It's dark in two ways. This period, the Dark Ages, is more officially known as the Early Middle Ages, and this is where we are today with Gregory. Now, we will in the future be moving into the High Middle Ages, which is thought of to be the best time in the Middle Ages, and then look at the Late Middle Ages, which used to be thought of as the time when the church um, most significantly slipped, forcing the Reformation. That's not so much the view today, but I'm getting ahead of myself we are just about ready to turn to Gregory the Great. I, I think I've set before you all that, that I need to to help sort of position you to understand that the church is going to emerge as a dominant force in society and, and that Gregory is the one that's sort of going to change things. The life of a serf, before Gregory, he would identify with some small feudal lord. And after Gregory the Great comes along, uh, he's going to identify himself by who his bishop is more than anything else. So let me talk candidly for a moment about the Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox issue. Um, look, I believe St. Gregory the Great is the first bishop of Rome to act like the Pope. And I believe that some things developed around this time under Gregory that, that created a Roman Catholic expression of the church that is a unique thing. But sometime after Augustine, a new movement came up that took on certain characteristics distinct from both the Eastern Church and the early church. This is, this is not the story that would be told by a Roman Catholic. A Roman Catholic would say the Catholic Church is the true church. There was apostolic succession from the time of Peter, the first pope, the one who gave Jesus the keys of heaven. Uh, and that, that flowed down through Francis today. Gregory was in that lineage and was only walking down the path already set up. The, the Roman Catholic understanding is that they are on a straight line from Peter all the way to the present. 
Now, around the 6th century, they would say that the Eastern Church began to drift because they did not want to recognize the primary authority of the Bishop of Rome over all other bishops, including those in the East and over the Patriarch of Constantinople himself. And that over the next few hundred years, the Eastern Church drifted away and finally split away from the one true church, the Roman Catholic Church. They would also say that though the church, the Roman Catholic Church, had some corruption issues towards the end of the Middle Ages, which led us into the Renaissance and then the Reformation, that the, they would say that the breakaway led by Luther in the 16th century was a big mistake and that those who followed him out, the other protesters who become the Protestant church, that those who followed him out left the church. In fact, Protestant churches are not real churches. They are sects. And, and while Protestants share a doctrine, a lot of doctrine with the Roman Catholics. Remember, all the, the churches affirm the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition. They would say that Protestant churches are not really churches. There was one true church, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I am not interested in any dust-ups on any of this. There are a lot, there's a lot of overlap between all, all three branches of the church, and I think there are Christ followers in all three. I use the protest language, the Protestant language, that there is one true church, the universal church, and that local churches should be made up of those who are members of Christ's true church, and that there are members of Christ's true church in the Protestant church, the Roman Catholic church, the Eastern church. For the record, there are differences in the beliefs between Protestants and Catholics. So the big dividing line is over the issue of authority, which deals with epistemology. Like, how are we going to know what is true? Here, the Roman Catholics would point to Scripture and to the magisterium, which is the sort of collected teaching of the church over the last 2,000 years. They They would argue that the church leaders, so the pope, cardinals, bishops, that the church leaders acting together in various times have the right to interpret the Bible and And in contrast to this, Protestants point to the Bible alone. Not the Bible and the church interpreting it, not the Bible and the magisterium, but the Bible alone. So in light of the differences in the sources of authority, there there end up being a number of differences, differences of interpretations between Roman Catholics and Protestants. There are a number of things where the, the Roman Catholic Church, I would argue, has added doctrines that the Protestants do not have, such as purgatory or the perpetual virginity of Mary or prayers to the saints. There, there are differences. There are differences, and there are differences that I think matter. But my goal today is not to go down that path. It's, it's to say it's impossible to talk about this moment in church history in a neutral way without, without advertising your colors. I, I, a Catholic is going to tell the story of Gregory the Great in the Middle Ages differently than I am. Okay, enough setup already. Um, on to Gregory. Gregory the Great was born into wealth in 540. His um, father was a Roman senator and a Christian, and he provided his son with a great education. As a young man, Gregory rose quickly up through the ranks of Roman life. He becomes a prefect, sort of the equivalent of a mayor at, at the age of 30. This is a very impressive accomplishment. But but, but being a prefect didn't hold his attention, and uh, he had a desire to serve in other ways. And so, after just a short while as a prefect, he became a Benedictine monk. And, in fact, when his father died, 
He converted the family villa into a Benedictine monastery, and he embraced the life of a scholar monk. He describes this as as the happiest time of his life. However, his leadership skills were known, and so he was commissioned by Pope Pelagius II to go to Constantinople to see if he could persuade the emperor to send some help for the western half of the empire that was suffering in a number of ways. We know that uh, we know that Gregory's going to be there for six years and that he's ultimately going to fail in this assignment. Uh, we also know that while he's there, he gets into a theological argument with, uh, with the patriarch uh, of Constantinople, and, and he wins, but uh, they'll both write some things, and then the patriarch will pass away shortly after that. And shortly after that, uh, uh, Gregory's going to be sent home. And so in 585, he returns to Rome with hopes of returning to the simple life of a monk. Uh, within a short time at home, he is elevated to be the abbot, so to be the in charge of this monastery. And not long after that, he is drafted uh, against his will. He does not want to do this. And he writes to the emperor and says, do not confirm this appointment. He is elected, though, by, by uh, the other leaders in the church to become the bishop of Rome, which is the same as being the pope. And he ended up serving that office until his death in 604. So, during uh, his 14 years as Pope, Gregory the Great gets a lot done. Now, I've already noted how he you know, stepped into this power vacuum and ends up elevating both the Roman Catholic Church and the office of bishop. Well, let me say, uh, that, that's the big thing. And if anything, I, I likely downplayed what a mess he inherited. There, there had been massive rains the year before. It had led to crop failure, pestilence. I mean, Rome was in uh, very deep weeds, and so uh, he had to hit the ground running. But he does that, and uh, and and he's just a, he's a brilliant administrator. He's a brilliant leader. In addition to that, in addition to his general leadership, the papacy of Gregory the First is marked by three other things. First, his efforts to convert the Anglo-Saxons in England. So as a pastor, I find this very impressive because when things are going wrong, it is so easy to look in. And, and Gregory says, no, we've got to be about telling others about Christ. So he, he re-energizes the church's missionary work in Northern Europe, famously commissioning uh, Augustine of Canterbury. So not Augustine of Hippo, but Augustine of Canterbury to lead this mission. And it's largely successful. And it's from uh, England, then, that missionaries are going to be later sent out to the Netherlands and Germany and, as well. So he's got a missionary thrust. Secondly, uh, he is committed to helping the poor. So Gregory was known for his, his, his extensive administrative systems of charity. He provides charity relief for the poor. His argument was that the money belonged to the poor, and the church was only its steward. So he personally lived very simply. He was an ascetic. He wanted other clerics to, be, to do the same. He wants the money to go to the poor. Third, he, he helps the church take some steps forward in music. So some call him the father of Christian worship um, because of the Gregorian chant and uh, other modifications he made to Roman Catholic liturgy. I, I, nobody seems to think that he was the musician who did this. Maybe it's just, you know, we don't want to believe he could also be a musician in, adi- in addition to being a scholar and an author and everything else. But it, it probably he just allowed the development of the Gregorian chant, uh, and and this he gets a lot of credit for this. And and uh, then in addition to these things, by the way, he was also very prolific as a writer. 
Now, for whatever reason, uh, Gregory's the only pope between the 5th and 11th centuries whose correspondence survived. <laughs> and we have a lot of it. We don't know if others were writing as much. But among the many things that he wrote, he wrote a commentary on Job, which is still in circulation. I was not – a couple years ago, I was asking uh, uh, somebody about the, the, the book of Job, and they directed me to this commentary. Um, he wrote a book on pastoral rule. And uh, this was this is where he he makes a contrast. He's writing for bishops and priests, and he makes a contrast between them seeing themselves as nobles of the church, <laughs> or as shepherds of the flock. And he says, "You are not nobles of the church, right? We are shepherds of the flock." So think servant. Uh, this book became a definitive statement on how bishops and priests were to conduct their work. We also have lots of his sermons and about 850 of his letters. So, I mean, it's just exhausting rehearsing all that he did. But let me briefly note five other things worth noting. Uh, first, he was heavily involved in shaping the Roman Catholic Church's view of salvation, which has him landing somewhere between Augustine, who is all about grace. You might remember that. Augustine is all about grace. And Pelagius, who is all about works. Pelagius is one of the guys that Augustine ends up fighting over. Now, by the way, where he ends up is sort of where the Roman Catholic Church is today. Um, at times, Gregory sounds like an Augustinian, and at other times, he sounds like a semi-Pelagian. I am okay. I'm a fan, actually, of the times he sounds like an Augustinian. <laughs> I am troubled by Gregory and the Catholic Church when it sounds more Pelagian. But, um, look, I mentioned this is one of the one of the divides between Protestants and Roman Catholics. I actually, what I mentioned earlier was that there was this divide over the sources of authority between the Bible alone and the magisterium. The reformers, this will be future episodes, 16th century, but the reformers framed all this with five solas. So sola means only. Uh, and and one of them kicks in here. So sola scriptura, only the Bible, not the Bible and the, and the church's interpretation. Sola fide, only faith. We're saved by grace through faith. So sola gratia, solo Christus, solo Deo. So this idea of only grace would be Augustine. And uh, so all of that to say, I'm, I'm not a fan of his work here. I'm in awe of the man. I'm not a fan of his views on salvation or several other things. He was quite, again, quite an ascetic. Uh, in fact, his view on on God and and how we need to sort of uh, punish ourselves is what really frightens Luther a thousand years later. But if anything, I am understating the acclaim. Gregory is is uh, is amazing, and so that's that's the second thing that I I need you to hear. There's there's interesting stuff, lots written about his views on salvation. I just want to say. He gets recognized in so many ways. He's recognized as one of the Latin fathers, which means he's one of the most important early church leaders who wrote in Latin. So this is the western half of the, of the kingdom. Uh, additionally, he is, uh, he is a doctor of the church, which means that his writings become some of the most significant of all. There's 36 doctors in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, he is one of those 36, as a matter of fact. So it's already an all-star team, but he is one of the top four. So he is generally regarded not only as one of the great leaders, he's regarded as one of the most important writers and theologians. He's considered a saint in the Catholic Church, also the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Anglican Communion. He's also, for what it's worth, 
the patron saint of musicians, singers, students, and teachers. And he did all of this even though during much of his life and almost his entire papacy, he was sick. In in spite of all the things that he did, in spite of his success, he was sick. And and then just to sort of uh, push this a little bit further, uh, Gregory the Great did not want to be called Gregory the Great. He wanted to be called Servant of the Servants. So the, there's a, a, a one of the terms for the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is Servant of the Servants of God. And this originates with uh, Gregory in terms of, of what he wanted people to call him, how he wanted them to think of him. He was a minister. He was a servant. He was a servant of the other servants of God. So um, there is much that we can learn from St. Gregory I, much that we can learn from this man. I don't agree with everything, but uh, I want to encourage you to be uh, challenged by his life and by his example and by his service.